This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I want to make a very plain observation here right at the outset of the show. The reaction of the Episcopal Bishop of Washington to the fact that President Trump stood in front of St. John's Church in Washington, D.C. and held up a Bible says everything you need to know about the left. The reaction that this woman had, the right Reverend Marianne Buddy, I guess is how you pronounce it, She was outraged. She told the Washington Post that she was mad at the president for standing in front of the church holding up a Bible. Why? Because she said the Bible declares God's love. And she said everything Trump has said and done is to inflame violence. I guess the rioters didn't inflame violence, you know, setting the fires before Trump ever got there. That that was not a problem. It was Trump holding a Bible. Is that not the most obvious point we can look at and say, there is a huge divide. There is a rebellion going on that starts in the heart and it is overflowing on the streets of our cities with increasing violence. And it was very good to see the president come out and say, law and order will be returned to this country and I will stand up. And it was an an incredible thing to see him just walking from the White House the way he did. It, It was a huge statement and holding up the Bible was the strongest statement of all, because when he did that, and on all the people in the left are saying this was a political stunt, and some of the progressives in evangelicalism are saying that this was taking the name of the Lord in vain. You know, Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. I think Jesus would commend President Trump for holding up his word as the final authority, as the moral authority, as pointing to who is in control. And it's not the mob. It's the Lord. And I think that that's incredibly significant. So in the midst of this, we have rioting continuing, looting continuing, horrors happening across America as they fight to get control over all of this. But I think it's interesting when we're looking at Antifa, this Marxist, uh, communist, anarchist movement that explicitly endorses violence. And yet you still have people in pockets of evangelicalism who won't come out and condemn it because they think they would be seen as racists if they condemned these Marxist groups, which is very significant because not only is Antifa a communist anarchist organization, but so is Black Lives Matter. I mean, this was founded by black revolutionaries in 2013 in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman and the death of Trayvon Martin. And and they are really closely allied with numerous groups that are fronts for the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, which calls for the overthrow of capitalism. And this is from Discover the Network's David Horowitz's site. You can look up some of these leftist groups and find out what their roots really are. Now, when I look at what is going on, we all know this is not just about racism. This is not just about the death, the unjust death of a man in Minneapolis. 
everybody condemns it. Everybody feels sick to their stomach when they see that video of George Floyd, as I've been saying for several days. But what is going on in the United States goes beyond a political movement. And I think we all realize that. It goes beyond a political movement. And it reminded me really of the book of Habakkuk. And I was considering this. Here you have Habakkuk, who is upset. It's really unusual when you look at the first two chapters of Habakkuk. Here you have Habakkuk interacting with the Lord. And he's basically saying, hey, wait a minute, Lord. You know, I'm looking at all this violence around me. I'm looking at all this injustice around me in Judah. Where were you? Where are you, Lord? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? And what did the Lord say? I'm raising up the Chaldeans as a matter of judgment. Now think about that for a moment. And Habakkuk's reaction to this is you have ordained them as a judgment. He agrees with the Lord. And then he goes on to have this incredible prayer in chapter three, in which he says, Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. His plea is for the Lord to remember his people in the midst of other people who are raised up as means of judgment against Judah for its faithlessness. And this is very significant for us. Here's President Trump, who by all accounts is not a born-again Christian, holding up the Bible. And I'm thinking to myself, there are evangelical leaders who we know, who are famous, who are up there and telling us to do this and that, and you're bad, and you should be better here, and you should repent of this, and you should be better there, who would never have the guts to stand up in the midst of rioters and hold up a Bible to Antifa or to Black Lives Matter. They wouldn't do that in a million years because it's too uncouth. Who in the world would do something like that? But this man, who as far as we know is not born again, I pray that he will be, But as far as we know, he's not a professing born-again Christian. He'll do it. Who do you think Jesus would commend? The people who are progressives within the evangelical movement condemning the president for holding up the Bible? Or would he commend Trump for honoring his word in the midst of anarchy? I think as we are removed from this situation more and more and more, we're going to see more of this stuff a lot more clearly than perhaps we do right now. So where does this lead me? Well, I was going back to this video. You might have seen this in the past. Maybe not. This is a video that's been around for a while. It was an interview done in 1984 in Canada with this host, G. Edward Griffin. And the guest was a man by the name of Yuri Bezmanov. He was a Soviet defector. He had been a KGB operative, and he specialized in Marxist propaganda and ideological subversion. And he talked a lot about how the Soviets had been working subversively on the United States to try to undermine it and to destroy it from within. And we know this is the case. You know, I had I interviewed, I was actually the last person to interview Vladimir Bukovsky several months ago, who had gotten, he was a famous Soviet dissident who had access to all the Soviet files after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and discovered all of these connections, even post-1991, between the Soviet Union and the American left. It's still going on. But what was so interesting about this was Bezmanov talking about what ideological subversion really is. What did the Soviets mean by that? Listen to cut one. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process, which we call either ideological subversion 
or active measures, активные мероприятия in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism. Now, think about this. This was 1984. This was 1984. This was before the wall fell. This was before the collapse of the Iron Curtain and before Reagan said Gorbachev tear down this wall and all of the collapse of the Soviet Union took place, although we would argue now that communism was never fully defeated. It just kind of lay low. Here we have Putin uh, leading Russia, who was a KGB agent with the FSB. So we know that communism never completely went away. But isn't he raising a really important point? And a lot of people have been raising this same point on social media in the last several days. What do you think is going to happen to a nation when you have generations of kids really soaked in Marxist ideology and America hatred and Darwinism in which they are told that there is no God, that there is no meaning to life, and that basically it's unfair for anybody to have anything more than you do. And so we basically need a new version of the Bolshevik Revolution. And now we're beginning to see it in our streets. But there's a lot more to come. We'll pause for a break and come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. I was afraid, I was scared, I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at Janet Mefford. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, minute by minute, things are changing. We're seeing the looting and the violence across America. It's good to see President Trump holding up that Bible and having the courage to step out of the White House the way he did and march on over to St. John's Church, even though the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese was enraged that this president of ours would actually hold up a Bible. I mean... This is a church that's pro-LGBT, so I don't think the Bible really matters to them a whole lot. But this is a very important moment, a very important one. We know what's going on in the streets of America right now, but how many of us were really paying attention to the ideological subversion of generations of American kids, not only in schools, public schools like we see now, but the universities and, and what that has wrought, the fruit that it has borne in our country? We need to look at that. Now, I've been playing some of this audio from the Soviet defector and KGB operative Yuri Bezmenov. You might have seen this. This is from 1984, long, long time ago. And he was talking about ideological subversion and how the Soviets brought that about. There has long been a tie between the Soviet Union and the American left, and we're seeing the fruit of that ideology. And he says this ideological subversion has four basic stages, and one is demoralization. He's been talking about that. You have to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves or their families or their community or their country. People are demoralized, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So what's the result? This is cut two. The result you can see, most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind, even if you... If you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. To get rid society of these people, you you need another 20 or, or, or 15 years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and, and, and uh, common, common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of, of, the, uh, of the United States society. 
Well, again, this was 1984. That was the year that he gave this interview. And how true is all of this? The radicals came to power. We see it in the universities. We see it in the deep state and the federal government and beyond all government. We see the media, complicit media. We see Hollywood. It's everywhere. It's the Internet. It's big tech now. He didn't have big tech back then. None of us did. So we didn't talk about big tech back in the 80s, but it's everywhere. Uh, There has been an ideological subversion and it's been propagated for so long. And look how much further on we are 30 years later. It's that much worse, which is what, in my mind, makes the election of President Trump that much more of a miracle. Honestly, I think that that's a genuine miracle. It's not like turning water into wine, but that was, let's call it an unbelievable answer to prayer for Americans who are absolutely desperate to say, how do we stave off this, really this Marxist influence in our country? Now, the interviewer then goes on to ask a key question about what happens in the future to some of these Americans who were brainwashed by this cultural Marxism and social justice. Listen to cut three. And yet these people who've been programmed and, as you say, in place and yes. who are favorable to an opening with the Soviet concept, mm-hmm. these are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Most of them, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, simply because the psychological shock, when, when they will see in future what the, what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice, obviously they will revolt. They, 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 will, uh, they, they will be very unhappy, frustrated people. And the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Uh, they, obviously, they will join the links of dissenters, mm-hmm. dissidents. Uh, unlike in present United States, there will be no place for dissent in, in future Marxist-Leninist America. Uh, here you can, you can get uh, popular like uh, Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody is going to pay them nothing for their beautiful, noble ideas of equality. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So in other words, the left, which thinks it's so cool and so hip and so modern, if they actually see the ultimate subversion to communists of the United States, they're going to be snuffed out like cockroaches, according to this guy. Who knows something of the KGB? Now, where is America on the timeline of demoralization? Again, this was 1984. This is cut for. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, For the last 25 years, actually, it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, Even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he he is going to receive a kick in in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So basically America is stuck with with demoralization and unless, even if if you start right now, here, this minute, you start educating new generation of Americans, it will still take you 15 to 20 years. 
to turn the tide of, uh, of ideological perception of reality uh, back to normal, no, normalcy and, and uh, patriotism. Well, we don't have much time left, do we, to train our children up in the way they should go and to feed them the Word of God and to give them a Christian worldview. Boy, this has never been more important. And isn't it interesting, this point he's made repeatedly, that for those who have already been subject to demoralization, you can't get through to them. You can't expose them to any facts and have them change their minds. This is why it's so frustrating to try to argue or have any sort of a debate with a leftist. You can't get anywhere. And this is why. Now, he goes on to talk about the three further stages that the Soviets talked about for destroying America. This is cut five. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials. Economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense, an economy. Uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. It may last indefinitely. So they want to go after the economy. They want to go after foreign relations. They want to go after the defense systems. Where is America right now? Again, in 1984, this is what Besmanov had to say. This is cut six. Most of the American politicians, media, and educational system trains another generation of people who think they are living at a peacetime. False. The United States is in the state of war, undeclared total war against the basic principles and the foundations of, of this system. And, and the initiator of this war is not Comrade Andropov, of course. Uh, it's, it's the system, however ridiculous it may sound, the world communist system or the world communist conspiracy. Whether I scare some people or not, I don't give a hoot. Uh, if, if you are not scared by now, nothing can scare you. But you don't have to be paranoid about it. What, what actually happens now, that unlike myself, you have literally several years to live on unless the United States wake up. The, the time bomb is ticking. With every second, the disaster is coming closer and closer. Unlike myself, you will have nowhere to defect to unless you want to live in Antarctica with penguins. This is it. This is the last country of freedom and, and possibility. This is the last country of freedom and possibility. Now, he did not foresee, nor do I think most of us foresaw at the time what would come about under President Reagan by the grace of God, the collapse of the Soviet Union, at least the old USSR, despite some of the lingering problems. But here we are. If the United States falls, where do we defect to? There is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. There might be some countries that you could deal with, but there's nowhere better than the United States as the United States was originally conceived of and formed and as it has thrived all of these centuries. And it's just it's 
the stakes are so high, you almost can't articulate it. And when I see, again, I have to go back to the church when he talks about social justice and how, you know, as soon as we win this war as Marxists, uh, you guys are going to be dispensable to us and you're going to be eliminated like cockroaches. And this is the very time at which we're having evangelical leaders push social justice on it, on us. And it is incumbent upon us as Bible-believing Christians to reject this stuff and to be loud and proud about freedom and about a society that was built on the foundation and the blueprint of God's word and to refuse to apologize for that because we don't know how many years we have left. It could be we're in the time of Habakkuk again in a different way. These may be the Chaldeans that are used by God to judge us as a nation, and we're very guilty. But we also can pray, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. This is why we as Christians need to get on our knees, repent, and beg God for revival. We're going to come back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. For more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The opening chapter of the Gospel of John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we also know from Psalm 33, 6, that by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. The Word is Jesus Christ, and by the Word, the Lord spoke into existence everything that is, and upholds it by the Word of His power, as Hebrews 1 tells us. The Word is powerful, and God's words are powerful. But if you were to choose just a few words to sum up God's word, what would they be? Kind of a hard question, but my next guest has done just that. Darren Spoo is past pastor of First Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's also the author of the book we'll be talking about called The Bible in 10 Words, Unlocking the Message of Scripture and Connecting with God. Darren, so nice to have you here. How are you? Janet, thank you so much for having me on your show. I do appreciate it so much. Oh, well, it's my honor to have you here. And I would say explaining the Bible in 10 years is uh, 10 words is a really daunting <laughs> task. <laughs> I don't know how you could reduce it to 10, and I know you can't completely reduce it to 10, but what made you want to try? You know, I, it goes back to a serendipitous moment. I, I was with some friends, and we were visiting South Africa uh, several years ago. And we were hosted to a night of stargazing, and I'd never seen the Southern Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you can't see the Southern Cross from the Northern Hemisphere, where I live in North America. And so seeing that constellation of stars was just really special. At the same time, at the exact same time, I, I was on this kick of reading through the first three chapters of Genesis, and I just kept reading, reading it over and over and over. And as I was doing that... Um, a constellation of words began to coalesce in a way that I'd never seen before. And these ten words, I, I realized in retrospect, uh, each word is, is seen throughout the pages of Scripture. And so I saw these constellation of words in the first three chapters that, like the, like the Southern Cross, I'd never seen before. And so I, just, I explored those ten words for all that they're worth, and I, I realized that those ten words together and each individually do a really good job of summing up 
the message of God's love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting when you're just sticking to the first few chapters of Genesis, how in fact just those chapters contain the very words that explain the whole Bible. How do you see that as being a particularly significant point for people that just in those few chapters, you can get the entire gospel and all of the importance uh, and important concepts that we need to know as Christians? Yeah, well, you know, it goes back to a problem that I face as a pastor, and I think every pastor and every Bible reader faces this, that, um, that the Bible is just sometimes overwhelming. And I've spent my career uh, as a pastor, trying to make the Scripture just just a bit more accessible. So the Bible has 1,200 chapters, 31,000 verses, three-quarters of a million words. You know, it, part of this, this um, journey of Bible in 10 words is to say, while, while the Scripture is big, it's also very simple. Anyone can understand the message of God's love for us. And so it's just a way of making the message of Scripture a bit more accessible and and not as overwhelming as it first may may seem. Right. That's very good. So your first word is light, and this goes back, obviously, to when God created the world, the cosmos, let there be light. Why is that word number one? Why start with that word? Yeah, well, you know, I instantly, when you see that, and that, that moment, that very first moment that God creates, that time is brought into existence, that the physical realities of our universe came into being, that the spiritual realities of our universe came into being, that to me seemed like the perfect place to start because how does John start his gospel? He talks about the Word of God and Jesus being the light of of the world. So there's this instant connection from that first moment of creation to God's highest moment of incarnation. And and again, each each one of these words is a thread, and there's there's no word like light to make that, that quick connection to Jesus, um, that that God not only, not only turned on the physical light of the world, but but the spiritual light that's available in Jesus. That's that's a pretty easy connection for most people to make. Right. When you look at some of the subsequent verses on light throughout the course of the Bible, what are some of the highlights? You mentioned John one. Obviously, Jesus is the light. But you you think of some of the verses talking about walking in the light and the light, uh, the darkness has not overcome. Some of those verses that reference light. What comes to mind when you're looking at at how that first uh, line from God, let there be light, is backed up with all of these uh, following references to the light and, and really referencing Jesus. Yeah, so, you know, I see it as, um, as the image of the sun and moon. So, so Jesus is the light of the world, but then Jesus turned around and said, you are the light of the world as well. Yes. Um, you know, and, and let your light shine, Matthew five sixteen. Let your let your light shine, whether you're a city on a hill or a candle in a house. So if there's anything we have to offer our world from our lives, it's going to be the reflected light of Christ. I have no light of my own to, to offer. Anything I have comes from Him and as a gift, and I'm and I'm to reflect that to the world around me. And, how much do we need that, especially right now in, in dark times? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, another word you highlight is dust from Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed yeah. the man out of the dust of the ground. I mean, this is not something that the pride of man likes to consider, the fact that man was created from dust. But it's yeah. really important for us to remember that. Talk, talk about why that is. You know, for me, the word dust is just a really good reminder that God uses ordinary substances. And, and I've, I've often said that as a pastor, that God uses ordinary people because that's the only kind of people there are. <laughs> and so God didn't make us out of gold or diamonds or anything. He made us out of dust. And, and right there from the very beginning, we're reminded that, that we are made of ordinary material 
And again, God has, has melded his divinity into our, our makeup of dust. And so we are special not by virtue of our own, but because of who God is in our lives. And you know it, and with it, dust kind of reminds us how frail we are, right? From right. dust you are to dust you'll return. Yeah. Uh, this is transient, and if we're ever to have a life, it's not going to be of our own making. It's going to be yeah. found in Christ. That's right. I mean, Ecclesiastes 3 is what you're referencing there, and and it also testifies, as you say in the book, to our creation and bears witness to the curse of sin. And, yeah. and this is important for us to remember as well. When we, we consider that we were formed from dust, man was formed from dust, and woman was formed from man, but we will return to dust. I mean, this is a common line that that is mentioned at funerals. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We understand that we are transient, as you said, and we are mortal, and yet we are immortal at the same time. So when you're speaking of dust and the significance of dust, how does that make the gospel sweeter? The fact that even though we are dust, we are important to the Lord. Yeah, well, you know, if if you trace the the writings of Paul, as he talks about Adam, he said, you know, we we all are heirs of a man of dust. We we are also heirs of the man of heaven. And he takes this idea of of we're just ordinary nobodies, but God has infused a new identity that will um, that will transcend what we are right now. That that who we are, we we have not even begun to understand who we are and who we will be in Christ. So as as many people have said, the best is yet to come. Yeah, Amen. It's wonderful to remember that. Also, the word breath is part of your list of ten. God breathed the breath of life into man, and the man became a living being. Without the breath of God, we would not be able to live. Why does that matter? I mean, obviously, in in natural ways, it matters. Obviously, but but when we're talking about breath, from the understanding that we have of sin and the gospel and what God did for us in Jesus Christ, why is breath a big word? Yeah, well. For me, breath is a simple reminder that we have a moment-by-moment dependence on God. I, I, don't, I don't think God just breathed the first breath of life into us. He gives us every single breath. And yes. I can live days without food. Now, now I don't want to, but I can live days without food. <laughs> I, I can live hours without water. But without breath, uh, the best of us, the healthy of us, will expire in a matter of, of minutes. And so breath is, every time we take in a breath and exhale, we... We acknowledge our dependence on God for the very air that we breathe and the capability of doing that. Um, Paul, quoting an ancient poet, he said, In him we live and move and have our being. If God withdrew himself from the universe, we would cease to exist. Mm -hmm. So breath is that moment-by-moment reminder of our absolute dependence on God. And it also teaches us, as a counterpoint to dust, dust is, is, is very visible, very tangible, Breath, not so much so. Breath, breath is very, um, it, it's invisible and it's mysterious. Well, it is. And, and I think, too, about when we are renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And just as we cannot live without breath in our lungs, we cannot live spiritually apart from the power of God in right. the Holy Spirit who indwells us as Christians. We're going to come back. Darren Spoo with us. The Bible in 10 Words is his book. And we'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. 
when a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us, and we're really glad that Darren Spoo is joining us. He is pastor of First Baptist Church of Tulsa and author of The Bible in Ten Words, Unlocking the Message of Scripture and Connecting with God, taking some of these key words out of the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, words that obviously pop up throughout the course of Scripture and really remind us how wonderful it is to see what the work of God has done for us as sinners. And this is great. We've talked about some of these words, Darren. Breath was the last one we were discussing. Another one you mention is garden. And of course, we talk about the Garden of Eden. This was a paradise. Adam and Eve had it so good. And then they had to go and and sin. And and now we're all sinners because of what Adam and Eve did. But when you think about the word garden, what is the significance to you of considering that word, not just there in Genesis, but throughout Scripture? So so I'm I'm indebted at this point to uh, John Walton. He's an Old Testament scholar and just a, a brilliant, brilliant man. And, and in his writings on the early chapters of Genesis, he reminds us of the ancient concept of a garden. A garden wasn't just a beautiful place. A garden uh, would be next to um, a king's palace, ne- next to the royal's residence. And the purpose of that garden was really to contain, it was a microcosm of the kingdom, that the most exotic plants, the, the most interesting animals would all be collected there in that garden. Uh, and so by saying that God put Adam and Eve in a garden, it wasn't just a nice place. God wanted to neighbor with us. He wanted to be right there with us. He, he wanted to have the best of his creation, which includes us and his image as being there. And so, um, you know, for me, the word garden is all about relationship, that we were meant to live in intimate relationship with God. And so that's why when, when man sinned, we were expelled from that garden. We lost a bit of that intimacy. But And isn't it interesting, Janet, that, that when Jesus goes to the cross, his last stop before the whole process of trial and crucifixion 
was in a garden. Yes. And, and that, that right. tells us something. That's a message there for us to say that Jesus is opening back a way of relationship with God just in that act of, yeah. of a garden before his crucifixion. That is so insightful. I had never really put it together like that before, but you're right. The connection between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane is undeniable. That is neat. That's that's really true. And, you know, when we consider the the word river, which is your next word in your Bible in 10 words, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. We think of some of these images of of water and how important that is throughout Scripture. But what stands out for you as far as why the river and that word is important? Yeah, well, this is another very simple gospel connection because, um, you know, what major city is not located on a, on a river? Uh, founding fathers of any city know that in order to have life, you need water. You need resources flowing through that through that city that, that only a river can bring. And so where does Jesus start his ministry? In a river. And while, while Christian baptism takes many different forms throughout, you know, all all the denominations, the one thing in common there is water, that, that that baptism symbolizes the resource of God's eternal life flowing flowing into us. And so that river uh, carries with it a lot of meaning because it's it's a picture of, of bearing life uh, in its flow. Well, yeah, and you think of John 4 where Jesus tells the woman at the well, you know, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks That's the right. water I give him will never thirst, and the water I give him will become in him a fount of water springing up to eternal life. That image of water is there, again, right there, describing who Jesus is for us. That's exactly right, and in, and in heaven... The image that we have of heaven is there's a river that flows down the main street of the city. Yeah. And so um, normally when I see a river flowing down my street, that's not a good thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. but, but in heaven, it's, it's a picture of God's abundance will flow through yet again where his people live, first in the garden, now in heaven. That's excellent. Now, the word eat is also part of your list, and the Lord God <laughs> commanded, yeah, that has to be there, uh, but the Lord commanded man, you can eat from any tree of the garden, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know that famous uh, famous command. Um, how does eating really resonate with you as an important word when we look at the whole of Scripture? Yeah, well, you know, eating is a great word that... Um, that we treat as an extreme. Sometimes people die because they eat too much, you yeah, know, right. uh, and we're, we're overweight and it's bad for our heart health and all this. But there's other people in the world that, that die because they eat too little and there's starvation. I mean, you, you just see the extremities of, of that uh, in that one word. And isn't that the way God's commands, God commands work? Um, he says, this is the way I want you to walk. Just even though my commands might not make sense in the moment, uh, don't go to extremes. Don't be excessively evil. Uh, don't go too far in being overzealous for the good. But just just do a simple obedience of my command. And I, I think that that word eat applies to so many things. If we just did what God commanded, we would realize that He has our best interest in mind. He commands these things not because He's killing our joy, but because He understands how we best function. Yeah. Well, and again, the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, and man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's another reminder. We are to feed on Christ in a spiritual sense and feed on his word. That That's what really popped into my mind when I got to that section of your book is I thought, boy, I need to feed on the word of God every single day or I will die in a way that I would not die uh, in the same way if I had natural food and neglected that. 
That's right. And and then there again, we, we make a connection between the garden and heaven because there we'll have the, the tree of life again. But it's not as it was in the garden. Now there will be 12 kinds of fruit, um, one for every month of the year. And it's a symbol of God's abundance and God's feeding his people all that they need. And we'll never... We'll never be hungry again. That's terrific. Now, we're not going to be able to get to every single word. People can read your book and they can get all of the great stuff that you've got in here about all of these different words. But I want to hop forward to another word on your list, afraid. And (laughs) that comes up in Genesis 3, obviously, when Adam says, you know, I heard I was afraid. I was afraid of you, Lord, because I was naked. So I hid. Why is that significant? The fear that we have because of the fall? Yeah, well, we have we have a choice. So. Um, somebody has observed that the that the command to do not be afraid, fear not, is the most common command in Scripture. In hmm. fact, it's it's over 350 times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But at the same time, we're given this command to fear the Lord. Yes. And, and that's where I kind of go with that is we can either live a life of being afraid or we can live a life of being uh, living in fear of the Lord. And that that's not being afraid of God. That's being overwhelmed with awe and respect at God, that, that everything else loses its factor of intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think most of us were afraid, um, especially with what's happening in our world right now. I mean, we just look after COVID-19. There's so much to be afraid of. We are not called to live in fear, but we are called to live in fear of the Lord, that we are overwhelmed at his majesty and his mystery. And because of that, we realize he has all things in his hands. That's great. That is really good. And I love that you mentioned that because I think that there is not so much talk these days about the fear of the Lord, but the Bible is full of admonitions to fear the Lord. And I remember this quote, I think this was William Gurnall who said this, the man who properly fears God will fear nothing else. That's exactly right. I love that. That's what made me think of, and I'm glad you mentioned that in the book. Now, another word, your last word is sweat. We're talking about (laughs) eating, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow, and this is the curse that was upon man kind after after the fall into sin but our curse is lifted by Christ how do you emphasize that so so of of all the chapters sweat was the most challenging because the english word sweat only shows up twice in the bible wow. that word in english translations only shows up twice once in the garden where it's a curse the other time is in the garden where Jesus sweats blood yes. on our behalf. Yes. And, and right there is that connection between our curse he took on himself. And and we don't have to live under the weight of sin anymore. Jesus has literally sweated out on our behalf. And in him is life. And so uh, I have to tell you, Janet, that, that word almost didn't make the cut, but I'm so glad it did because oh. that's just a simple connection. Showing up twice, it's oh. so profound. That's un- unbelievable. I, again, that's something I hadn't thought about before, but those are the only two times that sweat is mentioned that's in all right. of Scripture. Oh, man, that is awesome. Well, your perfect word, your final perfect word, which isn't part of the 10, but probably is the title and added to every single word in the entire list, and that is the name of Jesus. Yeah. Comment on this issue of all of these words being summed up in the name of Jesus. So, so I cheat a little bit because I promise at the beginning that all these words are found in the first three chapters of Genesis. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus' name is, is not there. But, but again, going back to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And not only is Jesus the agent of creation, but Jesus is also God's ultimate Word. Uh, just as he spoke creation into being so also he spoke salvation into being through the name of Jesus. And, and what does Philippians 2 say? That at his name, at, his, at the, name, uh, the, the word of his name, 
every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. That's the hope of the gospel, and that's God's perfect word to, to the aching human heart. Very well said. Well, the name of the book, The Bible in Ten Words by Darren Spoo, who's been kind enough to join us today. And just so great to talk to you again, Darren. Thank you so much for being with us. Janet, thank you again. You bet. God bless you. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. Take care. 